0: excited to be here tonight? All right. Okay. Uh, First things first, I have a huge announcement to make tonight. Um, Really big announcement. So um, really cool opportunity. Uh, Those of you that have been around Matthias, you know that we um, are very interested in international missions uh, when we are first living missionally here at home. And uh, we have been partnered in the communist country of Laos for our initial five years. We had partnered with a, a missionary there in, a, a, in the people group, the Lao Puan. It was an unreached people group. We smuggled Bibles a few years ago into Laos, pretty hardcore. Uh, but the problem is, it just it's not very accessible, okay? Uh, throughout our partnership, we'd only sent 10 people there because it, it, it would take 56 hours to travel to this village. There's chance of death. And what we realized is not too many people are interested in that. And so um, we love our brethren in the and We love uh, the, the, the country of Laos. But it was time to partner with a, a missional organization and a country that was more accessible. So really cool. Uh, two weeks from tomorrow, myself and Rob Guile are going to be hopping on a plane and heading to our new missional partner in, bring up the map please, and many of you know this, Ecuador. Now, um... Ecuador is super baller because uh, it's on the Amazon, right? Like, so a piece of, like, so the chance of piranhas is there. So there's, you know, you kind of get the life risk there. Um, but what we're going to be doing in Ecuador, and uh, Rob and I are going down to do a pre-trip, some reconnaissance for the rest of us, we're going to be partnering with church planters in Ecuador, in the Amazon, actually, and uh, supporting them in their work. Uh, so our first trip that we're announcing tonight is going to be during Lindenwood Spring Break. It's not just for Lindenwood students, but it definitely makes it accessible for you. Uh, so March 25th of next year, we're going to leave uh, and come back on April the 1st from, from a Friday to a Friday. Uh, the trip cost is only about 1000 which we'll fundraise and work hard towards. I say only 1000 because Laos costs much more than that because you're on nine different planes. This is you hop, hop in a plane, head to Atlanta, and then from Atlanta to Quito is where we land, and then you're pretty much in the jungle. So it should be a lot of fun. I wanted to mention to you, if you're interested in going to Ecuador with us, there is a, uh, an application uh, that is right over here that you can pick up after the service. You're like, well, why is there an application? Um, first of all, we don't just, we don't just like hop, hop in a plane internationally with anyone. And, and what I mean is like, we really want to embody living on mission here, and then for those folks who have embodied our missional call here, we feel like that this international opportunity gives us the chance to be further exposed. But I've told uh, the, the missionary that actually you're going to be seeing live here next week on a Skype call. she be really cool. We'll feel like Oprah, you know what I'm saying? Which is the only time I ever want to feel like her, but that... But, but Steve, the Missionary Connection, uh, will be up on the screen and we'll talk with him live. you we'll get to uh, see him. It should be a whole lot of fun as long as technology uh, doesn't evade us, but we're really excited about that. Uh, but, but there's an application because we, we want us to be living missionally here first and then moving forward. So we hope, obviously, that anyone who wants to go can go, but if you're interested, those are due by the end of November, so I hope that uh, hope we can take 30 or so. I'd love to... Take a big trip to Ecuador. So you guys excited about that? Should be a whole lot of fun. Speaking of a whole lot of fun, uh, tonight, um, it's going to be pretty interesting. So let's go ahead and begin with an interesting question. If tonight's your first time here at Matthias, welcome, and you may want to strap on your seatbelt. Um, uh, have you ever been on the interstate before, and, uh, and traffic is slowing, right? And, uh, and so you're, you're wondering, like, okay, what, like what's going on? Well, thankfully now, modern day, I can just hop on my phone, Google Maps, and I can see like where the traffic is, right? But but you have that sense of like, okay, is there an accident? Is there? And then you see, the lights on the other side, like the other lane, is where the accident is. But everyone on this side is just is just slowing down because they want to take the whole scene in, right? Now listen, w- w- what kind of feeling do you get within yourself? When, when you, okay, rage, okay. That, that may not be so pertinent in the direction I'm going here, right? You're going to seem like a communist here in a second, right? Um, what, kind of, what kind of feeling do you get in your stomach when you come up and you see this wreck, right? Rage, right? You, you, you come up and you see this wreck and this car is, right? It's, just, it's messed up and you know certainly someone got hurt. I hope in here that if you had a heart at all, a beating heart, you would feel some uh, sense of sympathy, But how much does that feeling change? Listen, how much does that feeling change when you're pulling up on the interstate? Same situation, same scenario. And you get closer to the car and you recognize its color. And then as you get closer, like you notice that, like there's something about it, whether it was the spoiler, the license plate or a bumper sticker, like whoever was just in that accident, you actually know them. Doesn't that feeling like tenfold, twentyfold, that pit in the stomach Like, I know them. Uh, Listen, it's one thing to know the the statistic of unemployment in America, and it's another thing to have lost your job. It's one thing to know how many um, babies don't make it all the way to term. And it's a whole other thing to be a parent of one. When things get personal, can we just agree tonight that everything changes? When whatever it is that you're experiencing in whatever situation in life. When things get personal. When it begins to affect you. Everything changes. You'll never know what it feels like to be one of those parents. You'll never know what it feels like to be unemployed until you actually are. But when you are the pit in the stomach. The feeling, the emotion that is evoked. When things get personal. It's you. Everything changes. Now. Now. This is extremely pertinent for our discussion tonight in Daniel. If you're just joining us, we're studying this amazing Old Testament book, Daniel. And I've wondered now, as we've been studying this, who is this book about? Often, in the Bible, whoever's name is on the book isn't necessarily who it's about, okay? For instance, Matthew? It's really not about Matthew, okay? Uh, Genesis? Not about Genesis, right? By a character or something, right? It's, it's Genesis in the adjective, if that's even the or adverb, whatever it fits there, right? But it's not necessarily that. So I've been wondering, is Daniel really about Daniel and his three friends? Or is it about Nebuchadnezzar? Because it seems like this story so far is extremely pertinent To this Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar. Now, if you're just joining us, I want to catch you up a little bit. Nebuchadnezzar takes over for his father. Because his father, in his world conquest, got a wee bit ill. He got tired of killing everyone. So, Nebuchadnezzar takes the reins. He heads to, in 605 B.C., in the battle of Carchemish. He smokes the Assyrians. He smokes the Egyptians who had come up from the south. And then he turns south and heads to, anyone? Jerusalem, right? So he comes into Jerusalem at 605 B.C., and there, he proceeds to take 50 to 75 exiles from Jerusalem. But, before he does that, what does the scripture say in verse 2 of this entire book that, that, that Nebuchadnezzar does? He goes into the temple of God. And he takes vessels out of the temple. And he takes those vessels and puts them, the scripture says, in the temple of, what does it say? His gods, Plural. Because you remember, Nebuchadnezzar believes in many gods. He's polytheistic. The other is monotheistic. So one god versus many. Nebuchadnezzar believes that there are many gods. And the chief god for Babylon is Marduk or Marduk. And this god sits on the throne of many gods. So listen. It appears to me that ever since Nebuchadnezzar did that. Took the vessel out of the temple and brought them to his own it's as if him and God have been on a huge collision course. It's as if, and though God already knew this was going to happen and even allowed it to happen, it's as if God was like, oh, really? Is that, is that your next move? Right? Like, you, you think, like, pawn to G, you know, rook four or something. I don't even know that I'm trying to talk chess, right? For those of you chessians, if that's even a word, right? It, like, it, oh, is that, is that your next move? All right. And what's his whole point in doing this? He wants to prove I can go in the, in the temple of your God and take these vessels out and your God won't do anything about it and then I can put them in the temple of my God. His whole point is, your God must not be real. Well, the whole three chapters has been spent through Daniel and his three friends showing Nebuchadnezzar actually God is quite real. It begins first, remember? The boys are like, we're not going to eat that food. We're not going to eat that. We're not going to touch it. And what happens? Even though they didn't eat of the king's food, they still appear better than the rest of those who, who, who did eat the food. Chapter 2, what happens? Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. No one can interpret it. But Daniel, through his God, Nebuchadnezzar still doesn't get it. In chapter 3, he builds a huge 90-foot-tall statue. And then he watches, as A.J. has just prayed, three men be put in a fiery furnace And all of a sudden, the fourth shows up, and they're fine. No singed hairs, no smells. Listen, this God has sifted through everything, it seems. All of creation, all of the things that he made, this great God who knows everything and is sovereign over all. It's as if he, like, sifted through it all, and just him and Nebuchadnezzar face to face... Nebuchadnezzar goes from believing and worshiping in these gods that are impersonal. I can't know them. I can't understand them. To by chapter 4, something has happened and I'm not saying that he comes to a full belief in God. We'll still have that question at the end of this chapter, but something has happened personally with him and God and when things get personal, everything changes. Chapter 4 is written from Nebuchadnezzar's perspective, which is crazy. It's the only chapter in the Bible, the entire scripture, that's written from the perspective of a heathen king. Unbelievable. Now, obviously, Daniel and him have a relationship, so it was probably included by Daniel, and Daniel maybe even helped scribe it, but still, Nebuchadnezzar is personal interaction with God. So, before we get going, it begs the question, isn't that your story? Some of you, right? Impersonal. I can't know God, God's, we would say, distant. All of a sudden, it, it, it appears like you and God just get on this collision course in God's pursuit of you. And then the impersonal, distant, through God's pursuit, becomes so incredibly personal. Isn't it unbelievable that as you sit in your seat tonight, each of you, though it's phenomenal and encouraging to be gathered as a corporate body, that ultimately all of this, it still is you and God. Isn't that unbelievable? Now, by the end of tonight, a huge challenge. And so I pray that your heart would be prepared to hear that. But in the meantime, let's study chapter 4. Here we go. Open your Bibles. Long interlude to get to chapter 4. The page number is on your screen. Daniel chapter 4, verse 1. A lot of history tonight, a lot of context. And ultimately, I believe we'll find ourselves deeply in Nebuchadnezzar's story. If you're there, say, I'm there. Seriously, rage? Rage. All right. What a good brother. Verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar to all peoples, nations, and languages. Hold on a second is this interesting to anyone is this ring a bell to anyone Remember when he was telling everyone to bow down to the ninety foot by ninety gold statue you guys remember what with the same this is the exact same language all peoples nations languages that dwell in all the earth and look at this is hilarious to me he says peace be multiplied to you nebuchadnezzar says peace I haven't seen much peace in his uh, regime so far right at the drop of a hat He kills everyone, or he wants to anyway, right? And all of a sudden, he's passing the peace to people? Hey, peace to everyone, right? Like I know that whole thing back there where where I wanted to cut off my closest advisor's heads, but now peace be multiplied to you. Now, we could take that step. The reality is this is just an ancient Near East, Mesopotamia way of opening a letter, okay? Savvy? So let's not get carried away with peace yet. Verse two, it has seemed good to me To show the signs and wonders that the, what's the word? The most high God has done for me. Again, let's pause. For him to say most high God would seem significant, right? Okay, Nebuchadnezzar, he's like, he's made the heart shift. He's come to a faith in God. But for him to say most high God is just claiming at this point seemingly what? There are all these gods, and maybe this God is the biggest one. Maybe this God is the king of lords, as the scripture has alluded to previously, right? Maybe that's what he's saying. But he says, it's, it seemed good to me to show the signs and the wonders, to write about this. Verse 3. How great are his signs and how mighty his wonders. Well, of course. What has he seen? He has seen unbelievable things take place. And so for him to claim at this point in almost a, a moment of worship, how great are his signs, how great and mighty are his works and his wonders, he's just stating the obvious, right? Right? or maybe not right his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion endures from generation to generation now now we're talking something different now we're talking kingdoms his whole bent so far has been whose kingdom lasts forever his own he has a dream put up the dream and in the first dream that we saw this was his dream It was a dream of four kingdoms, and his kingdom was the head of gold. He wasn't satisfied, though, with Daniel's interpretation of the dream, where he's just the head of gold. That's why he made a whole statue of gold. I'm not satisfied with this. I need to make a whole statue. Nebuchadnezzar's whole mentality is, my kingdom will endure forever. No one can come against my kingdom. Here I am. But here, he says, his kingdom his dominion, are we beginning to see a little bit of a shift in the heart of Nebuchadnezzar? Listen, has this God gotten so personal with Nebuchadnezzar that maybe what's coming off of his lips are actually, is actually a song of praise and not just of rote rhetoric? Interesting. Now, look at this verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, if you were confused previously was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. <laughs> a darn shame, right? I, I was, have you ever said that sentence in your life? Uh, so I'm just at ease here in my house and prospering in my palace, one and all, right? Like, come on over, we're just chilling here. Like, now listen, we have to understand what's happened. Because there's a little bit of a question of chronological order here, okay? So far, everything in Daniel has happened in a short amount of time. But I think this is written later much later why because he's already said peace again it could be attributed to the greeting and he's saying here that he's prospering in his palace and he appears chill which nowhere else in this book has he seemed chill like no he's always been on edge always wanting to kill everyone so 605 he comes into Jerusalem he takes 50 to 75 597 he goes back to Jerusalem And begins to kill and exile more. 586 BC. Nebuchadnezzar comes into Jerusalem and destroys the city. Knocks down the temple. Wipes out some men, women, and children. Exiles others. And apparently now, he's in a season of peace. So, I think this is later in his dynasty, if you will. He rules from 605 to 562. So we can't exactly pinpoint the date, but we know as he begins this that that Daniel is older and that Nebuchadnezzar is older, which is extremely pertinent to our conversation. Look at this. I saw a dream that made me afraid. Now he's already had one dream many years ago. And so now all of a sudden he in in the pursuit of God is having another. As I lay in bed, The fancies, which I had to do the Aramaic search there, right? Like, what is fancies in Aramaic? It is fancies, right? Like I was I was hoping for some like really articulate word, but it really is fancies, right? As I lay in in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head, he says, alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. He has a dream. It causes angst in his heart, and just like before, what does he do? Just like before, what does he do? He calls all of the wise men. Now, this is an interesting move. Before, the wise men couldn't tell him anything, and Daniel interpreted the dream, and not just interpreted the dream, but told him what the dream was before he even told him. So why in the world, why would he ever want to call these lesser specimens? I think there's a reason. Uh, let me explain. Uh, when I was in college, I was the lead singer of a band. Um, I, I really was. It was creatively entitled Blitz. And uh, it was a lot of fun. Uh, we were, I don't know how you, you would describe us. We were, a, a, you know, a, a hard rock kind of band. And um, it was a lot of fun. I spray painted my pants with a silver spray paint. Um, we, we had a great time. <laughs> Anyway, after a couple years, after um, when I realized that we were wretchedly horrible, um, and that it was extremely cheesy, I uh, I played the CD for some of my friends because we we came out with it with an EP. Like, don't don't kid yourself. You know, six songs. It was rocking. Brandon rocks searching all the time. It was one of our big songs, right? And um, when I would play that CD for my friends, there's always that moment where you like, you want to be around the right kind of crowd that is not going to, like, just rip into you, but that is actually going to, like, kind of, you know, hey, this, is, this isn't that bad. You know, like, Mark, I know, and my wife will say this very openly, she, and she said all this whole time, Mark, you can't sing. Why are you singing? Stop singing, right? She was really an encouragement to me, which I appreciated, right? Um, but, but, like, in those moments, sometimes, you just want to be around friends that are going to encourage you, like, that aren't really going to tell you the whole truth, even though you know the truth. But they're going to kind of give it to you like, oh, that blit, yeah, you guys, you guys are pretty rocking. Was that a cowbell I heard, right? Like, you guys, <laughs> you guys are pretty, pretty good, right? Listen, I think that's the case here. I think Nebuchadnezzar is like, all right, if right, I'll bring in these boys, and maybe they'll give me, like, kind of the soft truth. And even though I know there will be a, diff, a, a more difficult, deeper truth, Like, maybe it will still, like, boost me a little bit so I don't have to deal with something that he says is giving him phenomenal angst. I'm sure you've done this, and I see it here in Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 7. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in. Remember, Babylon is riddled with these kind of people. Sorcery, magic, enchanters, omens, all of this is driving the culture of Babylon. They come in. And I told them from the perspective of Nebuchadnezzar, the dream. But they could not make known to me its interpretation. Shocker, right? They come in and still, after whatever it is, 15, 20, 25 years, they're still saying we can't interpret the dream. Why are they still in this position? We're not sure. But they can't tell him. Verse 8. At last, Daniel came in before me. He who is named Belteshazzar... After the name of my God, okay, now we have a problem, you see? Now we have a problem. Written from Nebuchadnezzar's perspective, the first three verses, we get enticed a little bit, right? Like, it's, is he softening? Are we seeing a transition here? But then what does he say? Remember, these boys come to Babylon, he changes their names to names that reflect his God system, and now he still says... I gave him this name, Belteshazzar, after what? My God, okay? So we, like like him, we're like going back and forth. Where are you? Which camp are you in? He says this about him. And in whom is the spirit of the holy God? So, Nebuchadnezzar says, my God named him, but a spirit of the holy God is in Daniel. Table that thought. We're going to come back to that significantly later. And, and at the end here, verse 8. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians. Apparently Daniel is, in fact, risen to this place of empowerment and um, knowledge and wisdom where he is literally the chief of, of, of the magicians because I know that the spirit, again here, of the holy what? the holy gods. He goes back and forth over and over. Is it a god or is it gods? Is it my god or is it his god? He's so fickle, back and forth, is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you. He says this, tell me the visions of my dreams that I saw and their interpretation. Now, huge point of contention here. What do you see? What's different from the first dream? Anyone? This is a moment of interaction. What's different from the first dream at this point? Dude, K Max, yes, brilliant. He is, no one's dying right now, right? When the first crew came in, remember the first dream? If you can't interpret, everybody dies, right? And then Daniel got a moment with him. Daniel, if you can't, you're dead too. Here? No, no threat of punishment. No life is on the line here. Which again gives us some indication that this is later in Nebuchadnezzar's reign. He's a little bit more, a little bit more lax, and again, maybe a little bit softened. You see this. All of these little ingredients to a greater whole. Verse 10. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. Now, uh, tree, slide. Now, this whole vision is going to have to do with a tree. So as I'm reading this, how do you like my tree here, right? Planted this on my computer earlier today, right? As, as I'm sharing this dream, I want you to kinda get a picture, we're not gonna do the interpretation tonight, but I want you to get a picture of what this dream is and I think you'll be able to understand it. So, look at the dream if you want or your word, whichever you prefer. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong and its top reached to heaven. Now, a pause. Okay. Remember what I told you about the connection between Babylon and this ancient Genesis city named Babel. The Tower of Babel. And what was the whole premise of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, I believe? What was the premise? Let's build a tower that can what? Reach heaven. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream where this tree has, in fact, reached heaven. Interesting. It reached heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. This is one big old tree, all right? Verse 12. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant. A tree that big, I would wonder. Like it's like, like three times big, big as watermelon just falling from this tree. This is just humongous fruit. And in it, the scripture says, was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all The scripture says, look, flesh was fed from it. This is the picture of the tree of life almost. This tree reaches heaven. Its branches are beautiful. And underneath it, just this abundant fruit that the scripture says feeds everybody. Now, if you're a little bit intuitive, you can see where this dream is going and even where its interpretation is headed. But before you jump there, look at this. I saw in the visions of my... Hold on a second he said that this dream gave him angst. Do, would you have any angst at this point? You, you know, you're like, this is pretty sweet, right? Like, so I, I, I think I'm getting here that I'm the tree, I feed everybody, and I've grown so tall that I reach heaven. This is amazing. Uh, but the dream goes on, verse 13. I saw in the visions of my head, as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. Now, in ancient Babylonian history, a watcher is someone that refers to, even in the Babylonian polytheistic godal view, an angel. The Aramaic here confirms it. What he means here is not like a, an epiphany of Christ, preincarnate Jesus. This is an angel. So a watcher comes down, and in his dream, it appears like an angel, a holy one, came down from heaven. Verse 14, he proclaimed aloud and said thus... Chop down the tree, had to be one big old axe, and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves, and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze to protect it, you kind of get the image, amidst the tender, a grass of the field. Let him be, let him, hold on a second, now we get a little bit of an indication. Let him, so apparently this dream is about a person, a man, let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth, and look at this, let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. Okay, let me bring some clarity to the dream. He has a dream. Big tree. Watcher comes down. Chop it off. Lop off the branches. And the man is going to be wet with the dew. Almost like you get the picture of like living outside. And apparently he's going to lose his mind and become like an animal. Now this is, in, this is intriguing. If you're Nebuchadnezzar at this point... And you're wrestling with the first dream and how this could have implications on you now. You're like, well, I must be the man. And you're saying that for seven periods of time, which by all encompassing purposes, I think it's seven years, that I'm going to take on the form of a beast? This story is starting to get crazy. We're going to focus on that much more next week. Verse 17, look at this. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, multiple angels... The decision by the word of the holy ones to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over the lowliest of men. He tells the purpose of this dream. The purpose of this dream, this whole dream, is that whoever the dream is about is to come to this understanding that there is a Most High God whose kingdom reigns and rules forever. Verse 18. This dream... I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation. Because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the, the interpretation. Next week, we focus on the interpretation. This week, on this last phrase. Look at this. But you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is what is in you. Now, this has absolutely boggled my mind. Can you you take this journey with me? It's one thing for King Nebuchadnezzar to say to Daniel, you know who God is. You know who God is. You clearly worship God. You clearly follow God. You and God seem to have some kind of relationship. But it's a whole nother thing to say that God is in you the God's Spirit somehow resides in you and he says it three times in this text you don't just know God apparently God's Spirit Daniel is in you do you see this now much work to be done here this gets the mind going all over the place and it begins with this first question how has God gotten personal throughout the scripture you start to get the image that nebuchadnezzar understands that daniel and his god have gotten so incredibly personal so it begs the question for me and you how has in the bible god gotten personal well first passage i want to look at is this in the old testament in exodus chapter six This is how God got personal. Exodus 6, verse 7. He says this I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. You will be my people, I will be your God. Listen, in the Old Testament, God got personal solely by the nature of his will. There is no rhyme or reason. In the Old Testament, He chooses the Israelites and is in this pursuit of them throughout the whole entire Old Testament, though they folly much. In the Old Testament, how has God gotten personal? You answer it. It's his will. Sometimes he shows up in these strange circumstances to King Nebuchadnezzar. Other times it's like this to the to the Israelites. It appears in the Old Testament. It's solely the personal relationship with God is all just God's will. And I'm not saying that that doesn't happen in the New Testament. It's just in the Old Testament, we have no rhyme or reason. There's no graph or bar system, right? In the New Testament, though, something happens. How has God gotten personal in the New Testament? Three ways. First, Jesus dies and Jesus resurrects. And the Scripture says that the curtain tears in two. The curtain in the temple represented the separation between God and man. Only the priests can enter into the holy of holies. And so this huge curtain in the temple blocked off anyone else from entering. But when Jesus dies, the scripture records the curtain tears in two. And through the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, God gets personal Because now man and God can be reunited in personal relationship. Unbelievable. But not just that. The second way God gets personal is look at this passage. Romans 5. It's already been read as the reading of the word. And you have to see this. This is unbelievable. Verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 2. Through him... We have also obtained access, like I'm just talking about, by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Verse 3. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Know that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Verse 5. Huge. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through what? Through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us all of a sudden the Holy Spirit at the Pentecost comes into those who believe is there any more personal that God could ever be than to reside in those who believe in him I mean we're talking about the epitome of personal up close intimate interaction with God God literally thrusts His love, pours His love into the hearts of those believed by residing in His people. Unbelievable stuff. So, Daniel, apparently, in Nebuchadnezzar's perspective, has the same access. True or not true? In the Old Testament, Could people, Christians, faithful, have the Holy Spirit in them? Only by what? God's empowerment and God's will. The difference in the New Testament is everyone who believes gets the Holy Spirit, you see? That's the difference. Daniel doesn't have the same access that you have. David, a man after God's own heart, doesn't have the same access to the personal God that you have. Because you have promise from Christ, I have to go so the Holy Spirit can come. You have that personal access of the Spirit. And yet Nebuchadnezzar sits back and the only way he can talk about Daniel is, dude, something is different about you so much so that you must have the Spirit of the gods in you. How many people have said that about you recently? God has gotten so personal that the only way people can describe it is it's not even you. There's something else in you that is giving you life. It causes us to wrestle some hardcore questions. The biggest of which is, well, I guess to look like that I must be Daniel. Daniel. I guess to, to look like a spirit-filled man of God, I must be able to interpret dreams, okay? I must be able to, you know, send my boys into a fiery furnace, like, I must be able to do that. I problema, Paul says this, check this out, next passage, that was for the, uh, the articulate in Spanish, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1, and I, when I came to you brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Many of you feel so at times unempowered because you're like, I can't communicate the gospel like so and so. Paul, um, who knew his stuff, says when I came to you, church of Corinth, guess what? I didn't come to you with lofty speech or wisdom, but I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Look at this. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. Have you ever felt that before? And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom. But in what? In demonstration of the Spirit. When I came to you, I came to you in fear and trembling and not wisdom and not plausible words so that the Spirit could be evident and you would look at me and say... That, that's not even, it's not even like a man. There's something else in him that has made him a completely new creation. He doesn't talk like the world. He doesn't look like the world. He doesn't even resemble the world. There's something else in him. It's like he resembles God. Resembles. Then he says this. In my speech and my message, we're not in Paul's words and wisdom, but the demonstration of the spirit and power, verse 5, that our faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Nebuchadnezzar, listen, in this very personal interaction with God, is having this heart back and forth laborious view of there's something in Daniel that I may even desire because the Spirit is so Prevalent, powerful, real. Now, back up from all that. What does that mean, Mark? Right? Because some of you right now are like, oh, okay, like there's a lot of good passages there about the Spirit, and God obviously gets personal, and one question. Would you say in your seat that you feel a very intimate, personal Connection right now with God. You have access to the Spirit that resides in believers that Daniel didn't have apart from the will of God. And that God literally resides in you, believer. Could anything be more personal? Now, many of you would say this. I don't feel close to God. And I've wrestled all of my life trying to describe this. A Christian, someone who believes, they come to me and they say, Mark, I'm just, I'm in this season where I just feel like God went from personal to impersonal. Have you ever felt that before? Where at one time God felt so real, so powerful. So authentic, but now he just feels distant. I was wrestling with all this, and finally, after years and years and years of struggling with that, struggling with how to help and encourage people who said, God just feels impersonal, he feels distant. James 4 8. Listen to this. You also, this is unbelievable. James 4, 8 says this, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. And the verse 7 is submit yourselves to God and the devil will flee. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. To me, it revealed this massive issue in the church. We say all the time, yes, we want personal, intimate encounters with the real, personal, living God. And yet we have the promise, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. In the scripture, it's a promise. James is writing to Christians. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And some of you theologians are like, well, but doesn't God all do the initiating? Yes, of course he does. But the promise here and the image here is there are still Christians who have the audacity to put a personal living God who even resides in them at bay. Because they fear the intimate connection with God. Because you had that once and you know what happened. Conviction of sin in the most real way ever. When you are so intimately, personally connected with God you know how quickly your sin gets sifted to the top. Intimate conviction. And in those moments when you're most intimately connected with God, guess what? Your call is so clear and it it scares you. The call to be missional. The call to live a loving, holy, God-fearing life. Conviction of sin and the call is clear. And so what we do... We want a real, personal, authentic relationship with God outwardly. Inwardly, no. God, stay at bay. God, stay distant. I'll speak the words, but in my heart, I will not desire you. I'll make sure people know out of my mouth that I desire Him. Yes, I want God. Yes. Do you know what the Old Testament would say? What are you doing? The curtain is torn in two. You have access to the living God inside of you. Don't make a mockery of the gospel. That's what the Old Testament saints would say. Don't make a mockery of the death of Christ. You have access to interpersonally connect with God on a daily level. Draw near to Him and He will draw near to you, church. That's the promise of the scripture. And yet inwardly we're like, no, I can't get close. No, I can't get there because my my sin will be quickly convicted and my call will be clear and I won't be able to run from it. And that's the whole point. When the living God personally grips your soul, there's no running. Nebuchadnezzar sits back and says, Daniel, there's something in you that's completely different. And my contention is, why isn't that more prevalent when we have access that Daniel didn't? Why aren't there more people? The king of the modern world said that. Why aren't there more people looking inwardly through us and saying, they don't just know God, they resemble God. They'll never be like God, I get that. But God's attributes, love... And mercy and grace just permeate from them. So, do you feel personally connected, intimately drawn to God tonight? Many of you came in here and you've been communicating. I'm just in a dry season. I'm just struggling. Draw near to him and he will draw near to you. I've wrestled all my life. How can I encourage the church in their their complacency? the promise is clear. Draw near to Him. And if you're like, I don't even know where where that begins. Maybe it's just, God, I, I really do desire to have personal, a personal, deep relationship with You. And so, would You just come near me now? Would You remind me of Your character in Your Scripture? Would You breathe a freshness in me? And would You resemble Yourself through me? That's the promise. And a pagan king sits back and sees it in an Old Testament saint. How much more should the kingdoms of this world see that in us after the curtain's been torn in two? Let's pray together. God, I don't just want to tell you that I desire you. And then hold out my hands in sin and disobedience and push you away. God, I know that your will will be done and that your pursuit will turn void. And so I pray, God, now for my friends. I pray for those who walked in here complacent, who walked in here just putting God and you at a distance. I pray for my friends who just don't even know where to turn. I pray that you would give them direction. I pray, God, mostly that you would just give us a picture of the depth of the promise that through your son's sacrifice, you literally poured your love in us through the Spirit So God, would you fulfill your promise? You tell us in your Bible, draw near, and you will draw near to us. And so God, in these moments, we just want to draw near to you, your throne, your grace, your character. And God, we're holding you to your word tonight. Would you draw near to us and remind us that you're not an impersonable God, but a God that can be known stand and respond.